hello and welcome everyone to the 20th episode of Projects Girl Like Me Live, which is an interactive live streaming series advancing health and wellness discussions and education among women with and vulnerable to HIV. Monthly, I, Cece Coven, will sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our communities. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Renisha Love about navigating mental health care. I think this is going to be such a great topic. I hope that you sit around for the whole thing. And there will be links throughout today's episode to complete our survey. I ask that you do please complete that and fill it out. Thank you. So, Miss Renisha, if you don't mind just introducing yourself. And we can get going with the conversation. All right. Thank you, Cece. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Rainisha. I've been um, in the social work field for about 20 years now. Um, I've done a lot of different or worked in a lot of different roles. Um, some school social work, some DCFS, a lot of medical social work, um, including working within HIV field for a few years. And right now I'm currently working as a private practice therapist um, where I see the majority of my caseload are uh, black and brown women. Um, there's you know, a sprinkle of others in there, but the majority uh, tend to be people of color uh, dealing with depression, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress, trauma, and other mental health conditions. So that's, yeah. I have two kids. Their pictures are in the back. They insist on <laughs> hanging their pictures in my office. So um, that's that's pretty much it about me. I loved it. I see it for you, Mom. Aww. Um, you just said so many different buzzwords, and I'm so glad that you're here. The one that I heard the most was trauma. Um, I feel like we, it is the general public, we may overuse or misuse that word. Is there like a quick, concise definition you can give us of what trauma is? Ooh, Ooh that's a good question. Um, I get that a lot. Because I, I think what you said is absolutely true. People throw trauma around like, oh, that was traumatic or, and, and maybe it was traumatic, but other people, you know, may not see something as being traumatic, even though it may have been traumatic for you. So for me, trauma is based on you and how this particular thing made you feel. It's, it's, it's a feeling of, um, you know, something that happens to you that kind of heightens you or, or makes you afraid or, you know, just makes your body go into a protective type state. So something that's traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you. And I've heard stories from clients of mine who, you know, during the intake, I'll say something like, can you tell me about any traumatic experiences that you've had in your life? And they're like, no, I don't, there's, I, I don't have anything traumatic that I've ever experienced. And then as we get to know each other and we're talking, you know, they'll tell me about certain instances where it's like, you know, this person slapped me so hard that I fell to the ground. And for me, I'm like clutching my pearls, like, ooh. And they're like, just talking about it as if it's nothing. And so in that instance, like sometimes things can be traumatic, but depending on our body and how used to certain things we are, we may not see those things as being traumatic experiences because maybe this is how it's always been for us. So it's it's really difficult to kind of pinpoint one definition of trauma, but I think that's one of the important, the, the importance of mental health, right? To actually kind of process and talk to people about these things that may seem normal to you and your world. And, and probably maybe they are because it's something that you've been dealing with forever, but in a general understanding of sense of things, that may not be something that's a normal thing for a person. It may be trauma. Yeah, as you're talking, um, a comment from one of our community advisory board members comes up and is, does HIV get looked at as a trauma for mental health? And as you were kind of defining it, you know, or kind of alluding to what it could mean for all of us, 
HIV could be very extremely traumatic for so many of us, you know, many of us come to acquire HIV in different ways, but that diagnosis itself from our yes. own experiences, like the onset of my HIV diagnosis affected and impacted the rest of my life. And I was diagnosed when I was 20. I'm now 34. So 14 years and just, you know, diagnosed in June of 2008 and by June, I'm sorry, December of 2010, I already had a child. I was 23. And that was because I was worried that I wouldn't be able to have children. So I was like, okay, let me go ahead and do this. And how something like that impacts the rest of your life. Um, some people have um, become living with HIV in extremely traumatic ways, you know, I've just heard stories of people in the community and that I can only imagine why the need for people living with HIV to seek some external supports like therapy, you know, would be so important. And I'm glad that you pointed out some people don't even realize that they have experienced something traumatic because we are just so used to how things are. And that's kind of sad. Like, that makes me. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Definitely. And I think you made a good point talking about, you know, acquiring HIV and how that can be a traumatic experience. It definitely is. Um, for the, the years that I worked direct care with HIV, one of my, my, my role, my exclusive role was linkage to care coordinator. So it was finding these young people who had been newly diagnosed with HIV or had fallen out of care and trying to engage with them and get them to get back into HIV care. And in doing that, you know, as a social worker, my background is looking at the person in a, from a holistic perspective. It's not just getting this person to come to the clinic and take their meds. No, what are those barriers that are, that are there that's keeping that person from coming to the clinic? And a lot of the barriers that I found with people were, were you know, from that, the trauma of being diagnosed the embarrassment, the shame, the, you know, it's a small community in LA, a small community of, of color folks. So how, what if I see somebody that I know in there, then they're going to talk and they're going to, you know, tell other people. Um, when I worked with a lot of uh, young Black people, the trauma or the, the, the scary part was my family said this was going to happen to me because I'm gay or, you know, I'm trans or this is what they've told me. And, you know, coming from a very um, Christian family, you know, so th those were some of the things that kind of played into that whole feeling of shame and guilt. And it led to the trauma. So when you get that diagnosis, you know, for a lot of people hearing that it's devastating. And especially for a young person, the other thing we have to remember is your brain's not fully developed until 24, 25, right? So if you're a young person, 18, 19, 20, getting diagnosed with something that sounds like the end of the world, for your brain, it's hard to process that information. It's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel to feel like, oh, okay, I'll be okay. Not for a 20-year-old brain, right? Like you're talking about I felt like I might not be able to have a child, so now I need to do this. Like that was a trauma response, right? Like I need to do these things because I don't know what the future will be like. Um, there, there may be some difference in response for people who are born with HIV, right? Like they've been living with this all their lives. This is like, this is their, their normal. But to be living in one way and then a day comes and you get this diagnosis that seemingly just blows up everything that you've ever known, it's a difficult to take in. It's it's a lot of information and there's so much to process. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think of, you know, the people that I know that were born with HIV, even, you know, with it being a part of their life since they were born, some of the ways that they came to know that they were living with HIV or, you know, the way that the 
their communities were told that they were living with HIV. Um, my heart just goes out so much. And once again, it's not surprising that so many people who have experienced trauma such as HIV seek or, you know, therapy is an option for them to seek as a support. I know that it has definitely helped me, but I come from you now a black family and I have a Jamaican father and therapy is sort of like, you know, you're not crazy. Why are you one of them people? You, you know, they'll use the word a shrink or, you know, what you going to go tell all them people your business for stuff like that. So, you know, already dealing with whatever you're dealing with in your mind and then having to go against opposing forces who love you. You know, they say they love you, but they don't quite see why you're going this route. And then to, you know, finally land in the office of a therapist, that in itself is a struggle and a battle. How I, I love that you serve brown and black women. Do they ex express, you know, similar stories with the stigma of mental health? Definitely. You touched on it perfectly. Perfect example of what I see a lot of, which is, you know, people coming to therapy, people realizing something in my life is not going the way that I would like it to go. And I want to make a change. And and I'm going to take this step to make a change because maybe they have talked to the pastor or their parents or friends and they haven't gotten what they need. So they decide to come to therapy. And then I'm sitting as a therapist looking at this person who's living in all of this dysfunction and made to feel like there's something wrong with you. You're the crazy one because you're the one that's doing something different. And I find myself constantly having to educate my clients on that, that, yeah, it, it's almost like, I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, Meet the Fockers, where he's talking about like the circle of trust, right? Like he's like, this is a circle of trust. And these are the people inside the circle of trust. Like I like to call it the circle of dysfunction. And so I always tell him like, this is the circle of dysfunction. And these are the people living in the circle of dysfunction. Well, if you're on the outside of the circle of dysfunction, of course you look like the crazy one because the dysfunctional people are doing all of the things, right? Like they, the dysfunctional people are, they're, they're tight knit, they're hanging together, they're doing all the dysfunctional stuff. But here you are, the person who is trying to get out of that dysfunction and you're making decisions to do things different. Of course you look like the crazy one. Does that mean it's true? No, it doesn't mean it's true. It means we need to look at how this dysfunction has played a role in all of our lives. And now we're trying to move away from that. That's really hard for people. You know what I'm saying? It, it's hard to break away from your family, from what they've told you, from what you've been raised in to say, no, you know, it wasn't right that you let this thing happen to me, or it wasn't right that, you know, I, my parents were doing drugs in front of me or whatever the case is. But it's really hard to try to change people's perspective on things that this is the only thing that they've ever known, especially in communities of color. Like that, that's kind of how we are. Like we don't tell our business. We don't need to talk to people. Oh, my first therapist was a, a older white lady. And I remember my mom telling my family members, oh, you know, Renisha's been letting that white lady tell her what to do. <laughs> like, and it was because I started setting boundaries with her. And she wasn't used to that. So here I am now, you know, getting the, the, the strength and like, you know, the encouragement and having somebody say to me for the first time, yeah, you're right. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to say these things in a respectful way to your mom. None of my family members were ever, you know, you know how your mom is. That's just how she is. Oh, you know how she is. That's all I ever got. And then to get validated somewhere else and to start to set these boundaries, now it looks like I'm letting this, you know, white lady pull my puppet strings and tell me what to do. So it is very hard when you decide to make that, to take that step to getting help. I also feel like, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. This is my soapbox, but I also feel like this is why it's important to have therapists of color because we need to be able to talk to people and communicate to people who look like us, who, you know, we don't have to explain everything to. Like the therapist that I had 
were great. But when I got a black therapist, I felt like I could tell her certain things. I could, you know, I didn't have to explain certain stuff to her. She got it. She understood culturally. And and not to say that everybody's culture is, we're not all the same because we're not, but the basic stuff, like I felt like I could talk to her about things and she understood the perspective of, you know, you talk to your parents this way or you don't disrespect your parents. And so she was able to work with me in a way to help me phrase things that made sense for me and the way that I was brought up versus someone else who may not have that same type of background. And so that's why I think it's so important that we have clinicians of color so that people can go to somebody and feel comfortable enough to go to somebody so that they don't feel crazy, you know, or that, or that they're letting somebody tell them what to do. I loved everything about that because that was my experience as well. I have not had the opportunity to work with a therapist who is black. Not yet. I've been searching, but the waiting list is so long. Like even trying to get my son into mental health care, he is 11. But I do, I feel like, you know, I don't want to wait until he's 30 years old and be like, okay, maybe you should try therapy. If we could start working on this stuff early, cool. So, you know, go and requesting a black male. Well, that's really hard to find. So then it was like, do I even want to go on the black woman wait list or the white male wait list? And it was like, neither one of those was exactly what I wanted for, for my child. But I also overcame that with my own therapy because when I first walked in and it was like this skinny white lady, you know, she looked like she's into plants and yoga and theater and all of this type of stuff. And I'm like, what can she do? Like, I walked in with this sort of like, this is not going to work. But I loved her. Like, we fell into this three-year patient therapist relationship that I absolutely loved and adored. She helped me so much. So once I was able to let some of my guard down, I felt like I was more receptive to what she was there to help me with. Yet it would have felt wonderful to be able to have that conversation with a Black woman because no matter, you know, how woke or how much I felt like she understood me, I know that there are just some things I wouldn't have had to explain, as you just said. Um, I also think it's important for people to understand, too, when it comes to therapy, every therapist is not the therapist for you, right? Like that's and that's fine. It's important that you find somebody who's a good fit for you. On the other hand, maybe this therapist can take you to this point, but then you need somebody else to kind of like take you to the next point. So the fact that you were able to get somewhere with her in three years is great. Maybe your next therapist will be a, a Black therapist and maybe you can work on some other issues. So it's not like you do therapy one time, you know, for a couple years or a couple months and then you're done. Life, you're constantly evolving. We're constantly growing, you know, <laughs> that Joe, like yesterday's price and not today's price, like things change. Like, so I think it's important for us to remember that about ourselves, that we are constantly evolving and maybe at the time you wanted to work on this specific set of things. And now, because that's what happened for me. Like I was fine with my white therapist. I had, I had a couple of them and a Bolivian one, I think. I don't remember, but I had three therapists before I got to my first black therapist. And then when I got to her, I was like, okay, I felt like I could address certain issues that I hadn't really been able to get deep about with my other therapist. And not to say that they didn't help me in other stuff because they did, but this was a, a different experience. So I, I was able to work on different things. And if you, if there's any takeaway from this, I would say for everybody to keep in mind that one bad trip to the therapist does not mean that this is not for you. Sometimes people are just not a good fit. It's like a relationship, right? Like sometimes it's just not, I don't hate my ex-boyfriend. We just didn't work well together. It just wasn't a good fit for me. He's a great guy, just not for me. The same with a therapist. It might be a great therapist, but maybe they're just not a good fit for you. Don't give up if you run across that where, you know, you come in contact with somebody that just doesn't feel right. You, you have to try it, test it out. It's a relationship like every other relationship that you have. And that's sort of how I approach it. Like, you know, you go out and you get 
big things. Like you don't go buy the first car that you test drive or, you know, not the first house. And so when I embark on a journey of looking for a therapist, I already like that's my expectation that I'm going to have to test drive a few which I know can kind of be off-putting to some people because you want to go in and you want answers or, you know, help as quickly as possible. But sometimes it may take a little test driving. Don't get frustrated. Try, try again. Because really, I can say that therapy has helped me so much personally in my own life so much. But I know that everyone doesn't have access to that either. Um Without my insurance, I know that I would not have been covered or even at the clinic. I think that was the last way that I was receiving it was because this clinic offered mental health services. So whether or not I had insurance or not, I was able to be seen by one of their providers, which was extremely helpful. But then there are some people who make too much, you know, to qualify for state funded medical or the co-pays are too high when you're trying to use your own private medical to go. So it's, it hurts my heart a little bit to know that those people are probably the ones that would most benefit from the services. From a provider standpoint, like, is are there ways that, like, how can people get into therapy when they can't afford it? That's my question. I think we're starting to see um, a lot more providers who are doing maybe like sliding scale uh, where you pay what you can afford or, you know, if their rate is one rate, they'll kind of look at, well, how much can you afford to pay? Or can we see each other not weekly, but maybe we can see each other biweekly or every three weeks or something like that. So, you know, those are some ways um, uh, some therapists are doing pro bono spots. So, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are kind of uniting and providing therapy for people. I know, I don't have the info on it, but I know that um, like Taraji P. Henson has a, a mental health initiative where she's either doing like free or low cost therapy for people of color. And I think there are a lot of other organizations that are starting to kind of band around that because, you know, it it is an issue. And as a clinician, it's it's hard for me I want to be able to provide therapy for everybody who needs it. Um, I don't have the capacity to do that. I want to be able to, you know, charge people a rate that is affordable for them, but I also have a family to feed. So it's like, it, it, it kind of, you know, you have to balance it out. So what I can do is I can do a sliding scale for some people. So maybe I'm charging eight people full rate and maybe two people are paying half of that or a, a quarter of that. So it kind of balances out so that, you know, people who are actually in need of therapy will actually come and try to, you know, engage and get it. But it, it is an ongoing issue. I think when we look at a lot of the issues in this country, um, a lot of it comes down to people in communities of color, we don't have access to things we need access to therapy, right? Like these are the things that we have not had access to for years. And I started private practice right at the height of the pandemic, right, you know, in the summer of 2020 when um, George Floyd happened and people were, that was a trigger for a lot of people to come into therapy. And so like seeing people, that event happening, I feel like kind of propelled a lot of people of color to say, this is not okay, I need some help. I, I you know, living in America is, is trauma, it's stressful. Waking up every day here in this ghetto place is trauma. So that event helped people realize that and start to see like, okay, I, I wanna be able to talk to somebody about these things. I wanna be able to talk to somebody who looks like me about these things, who understands what I'm talking about. Uh, when I say I'm afraid for my partner when he goes out at night because of, you know, the, the politics of the world or this country. So those are the, some of the the things that people are dealing with. It's, I don't know what the answer is to get access to everybody. I think it's an ongoing issue. 
I wish more people could have access, but there are so many barriers in place that keep people from getting the access that they need for mental health that, you know, it, it's, it's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Are, are people having issues because they don't have that mental health support or, you know, or is it the other way around? It's very difficult. Man, so I guess the word for this would be a trigger because as you mentioned, like George Floyd, <clears throat> excuse me, in that time of life, like my eyes started to well up with tears because those all of those emotions and feelings from that time just like pour back. And uh, living in Philadelphia, in the inner city, like in the inner city, to watch after that, you know, not only had has it always been happening, but it's in the media constantly, constantly, constantly. And then George Floyd, and then the riots and looting and all of that began to happen. I had already been driving my son to school every day through a very drug infested neighborhood. So like some mornings we would see people shooting up in their neck and their arms on the way to school. And then I'm going to work, dealing with work, you know, going through that whole hustle and bustle. And then now to see our city getting destroyed because of, you know, something that is, is justified. Like, I understand why it's happening, but it was too much to take on. To be able to pour it out in a therapist's office was extremely helpful. But then COVID was going on at the same time. Like, literally all of these things. And I still feel like we're living in that. And it really is confusing for my mind sometimes because so if you look, you know, out into the world, it seems like everything is like normal. I use that very loosely. It's like, do y'all not see what's going on? Like, are people really not affected by what we have just been through and continue to go through? Like, do you not think that this has an impact on your everyday life? in your children, in your interpersonal relationships? Like, do you really not? Even something as small as during the pandemic, Googling to see if Walmart is open. Open. Google says that it's open. You fight your way to get there and it's closed because of COVID. Something as small as that was so life altering and continues to be. Yet we still navigate this. We navigate, you know, our relationships, our kids, our work life, all of this. But that is why I seek therapy because I know it's a lot going on. I think um, an interesting thing that I just thought about is you talking about how do we continue to live life through all of this stuff that's constantly happening around us and looking around like, are people not noticing like what what's happening? I'm a big believer in DNA and I feel like trauma just being a black person is in our DNA, right? Like from our ancestors, from slavery, from all of those things, like our emotional responses go back to all of that stuff. The need to, you know, protect ourselves, the need to not let something get to us, but to continue to go on and, and fight. Like it's part of our DNA. So even while all of these things are happening around us, we have George Floyd, which we knew for you. I mean, you, I'm from California. You think about NWA in the 80s, F the police. Like, that's what we grew up listening to. So this is nothing new, right? Like, this is nothing new for eight-year-old me who should not have been listening to that. But that's what my older cousins were playing. So the idea of police brutality and them treating Black people a certain way and all of this stuff, this is not new for us. This is, we grew up in all of this stuff. So it's like all of these things, this is new for white people or people outside the community who have no idea what it's been like to live in this country all this time. Now it's like, oh, okay. And that's kind of frustrating for me because it feels like now that y'all see it, it's a problem. But when we've been talking about this for years, I mean, you can even, even further back from NWA, you can think about Marvin Gaye's um, inner city blues songs that talk about what life was like and how things have been for people of color in this country for years that is frustrating because 
it feels like we don't get that validation of her experiences until somebody from the outside comes and validates it. I feel like George Floyd was like a wake up call where people were like, we're not doing this anymore. We're done with this. We're tired. And this is, you know, this is what we're dealing with. And now you see it. It's in your face. So what are you going to do about it? Marching. We've, we've been doing all that for years. Even the mental health aspect, like people have been getting mental health therapy for years. This is nothing new. I think people of color are starting to realize that this is something that we need to, that we are, we deserve, right? Like we deserve to have the same things as other people. We deserve to have the same access and to be able to talk to somebody and, you know, try to work through some of the problems that we have. We deserve the same type of stuff. Um, I see Griselle, my old coworker, is on live right now. And one of the things that she said to me years ago, and I always, I don't know if she knows this or not, but now she will. And that I always tell people is, I remember us having a conversation one time about like asking for a raise or something. And she said to me, you know, white people go in the office and they demand a raise. They go in there like, this is what I want. Give me this. And she said, people of color go in and we feel like we have to justify the reasons why we deserve something like, and that we are, we're grateful for being given this certain thing instead of going in and demanding like, this is what we want. Like, and that's what we need to start doing. And that always stuck with me because it shifted my mindset about how we, because of how we've been conditioned in this country, how sometimes we don't feel like we deserve certain things. And therefore we don't ask for certain things or we don't demand certain things. And now I feel like the tide is kind of turning and a lot more of us are demanding certain things and asking for the things that we need. We deserve nice things. There have been so many great comments coming in and from Grizel and Olivia and Bridget. So I wanted to um, go back to it. Grizel initially said, she said, she loves the way that you phrase it. There's something in my life that is not going the way that I want it to go. It's not about something going wrong, just wanting something or something being wrong with you. So I like that we over here believe in language being so powerful and important. Um, another person talks about how we are like, don't ask, don't tell. Absolutely. Why are you offering up information? Don't go out of my house telling none of my business. Um, another comment, living in this country, it has been important for me to talk about the impact of white supremacy on my own well-being. I think that she, that was from Grizel. Sounds like that was along the lines of the conversation that you all were having. Um, Olivia says, yes, it's so important to have mental health providers of color available. It was actually a point made from our community advisory board as well. Um, providers of color. So thank you for bringing it up. She said, I have also hit white therapists. I'm very good, though honestly, white provider relationships can cause slash exacerbate trauma themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and Bridget, she talks about this. She has a 30-year-old son, and she said after George Floyd killing, she really feared for him. He's a 30-year-old, <laughs> smart ass, and big. Therefore, he's perceived as a threat. And that is scary. Um, you know, I, I have an 11-year-old. And I, you know, being able to be his mom and watch him come from a baby to now he's going through, done all these cute little milestones and everything. And now he's just 11 and he's, he's big. He's tall. He's getting wide shoulders, all of that. And like how someone could just perceive him to be a threat just that, oh, he has locks too. That apparently is a big deal. <laughs> That's a big thing. But he's the sweetest young person, but someone else could just perceive him as a threat. And it hurts my heart because <laughs> he's not that. And the comment that said that HIV is not the only thing that we go through or that we think about is so true. Through all of this, we're still all navigating uh, HIV diagnosis on top of all of these things that we were all experiencing at the same time. No, exactly. And that's something that it doesn't go away, right? Like you wake up every day um, and you're still having to deal with that. I, I, right now, I supervise a group of clinicians that are 
trying to get licensed and they work for uh, an agency that provides services to HIV positive individuals. And one of the things that they talk about a lot is every year they have to renew this form for housing. And one of the questions on there is like, has the patient's health status changed? And they're like, they're HIV positive or they have AIDS. Like, no, their health status hasn't changed. Like, why is this even a question on here? Like answering that question is traumatic. It, it's a constant reminder. So yeah, like there's still a lot of stigma uh, regardless of how far we've come. There's still a lot of stigma stigma attached to having an HIV diagnosis. And it's scary because how do you live your life when you're walking around with this thing that is just basically stuck with you? There's nothing that you can do about it. And then you have to navigate life with that along with all the other stuff that comes your way on a daily basis. It's a lot. I mean, even, you know, for you, even as a mom, having to, I have two boys, they're, they're going to be huge because my husband is huge. He's six, four. And so I already know they've all, they've always been bigger than how old they are. And so that's a constant everyday stressor for me is thinking about how my boys are going to be perceived, what, what's going to happen to them, where's the best place for me to raise them so that they have the best chance of being successful. So that's something that I think about on the day-to-day basis, being a mom, navigating, you know, being HIV positive, um, navigating, being a black woman in the world, navigating health systems and mental health and relationships and all that stuff. It's a lot for one person to deal with. But again, I think it goes back to our DNA and us feeling like, oh, I got this, I can handle all this stuff. So I think a lot of us will take on so many stressors and so many things, not on purpose, but just because that's just how we are, that we don't feel like we need to have that outlet, that mental health professional or somebody to talk to us like, oh, I can just tell my friend about this thing. But, you know, it's different. Your friend has a vested interest in you and your outcome. Your therapist hopefully also has a vested interest in you, but they also have a professional obligation to kind of do certain things that may be beneficial for you. So I think it's important that we start to take on, like actually acknowledge all of the stressors that we have in our lives and stop feeling like we have to take on all of this stuff and not be able to let it out and talk to people or cry or or whatever the case is. I mean, I even, as a therapist, when I see my therapist, I find myself kind of like, I'm not gonna let this lady break me down. She's not gonna let me cry. You know, I'm not about to cry in front of her. But then one day I was just like, ah! <laughs> you know, because I, I know the importance of just letting it out and, and making people feel like you have a safe space to come and talk about whatever it is that you need to get off your chest. Yeah, I've... um. Well, first, Bridget said your voice is so common, which it is. We could all just sit here and listen to you. <laughs> Except when I'm screaming at my kids. <laughs> but, oh my gosh, navigating all of this and oh, I've, I've come to realize I ain't got it. I ain't got it. I don't. I don't want to be strong. I don't want okay. to. <laughs> that's okay. We need to. We need to be okay with not being okay. I tell people all the time, it's, we're not going to be happy 100% of the time in our lives, in our relationships, with ourselves, with everything. And that's okay. And when you give yourself permission to not be okay, I think that's when you can start to see the growth in yourself because you realize you're, you're human. You're not a robot. You're not, everything's not always going to be perfect. Absolutely. And I know a lot of our um, audience in our cab, they are also advocates. So, you know, women living with HIV and who also advocate on the behalf of those living with HIV, which that can bring on another layer of like stress, accountability, responsibility, you know, and some of us live our lives very publicly in front of the world, which is another stressor. So I'm always the one to say, hey, if you need to go talk to somebody, please go talk to somebody. Like I like to think of it as short, sort of like spreading light, sharing light. Some days I don't have it. 
and you know you have something to give to me i'm more than welcome to take that on and you know some days you might not have it either some days it's just gonna be really dark over here and i need for y'all to let me have that nothing is necessarily wrong i just don't have it to offer and i have cleaned my space in it like y'all not gonna take that away from me i think i've done very good with setting that boundary and that is something i definitely learned in therapy yeah, I think for what you said about people being advocates and doing the work and then, you know, having to try to take care of themselves and somebody else, I think it's important for us to also remember that, that when you're taking on other people's stuff, regardless of what it is, it's even more important that we take care of ourselves because it's hard to, to hold on to some of the stuff that people are telling you or the stories that people are telling you. And then you're dealing with your own traumas and things from the past and current relationships and all of that stuff it's a lot of mental space to take on and so especially when you're a caregiver whether you're a therapist or an advocate or providing any type of services for anybody that's even more of a reason to seek mental health because you need to be able to offload some of that stuff that you're taking on like there i think i maybe have three or four therapists on my caseload that i see that came because they, you know, they have this job of working with people and taking on their stressors. And then we have our own lives too, right? Like we got a bunch of stuff going on that in our day-to-day -day lives is stressful too. So I just want to encourage everybody who is an advocate or a caretaker or a caregiver or whatever, any way that you're taking care of or taking on somebody else's stuff to make sure that you're taking that time for yourself to kind of clear out some of that mental space because it's it's a lot some of the stuff that people tell you can it's secondary trauma to you right like so we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves so that we can provide the services that the community needs or that people need one of the things that i tell a, a lot of my clients who tend to take on people's stuff is that I started flying with my boys when they were pretty young. And I noticed every time I would fly, the, the flight attendants would always come and tell me certain things. Like when they're walking around doing the seatbelt thing, they would always come to me and say, hey, mom, if something happens, make sure you put your mask on first and then put your kid's mask on. And the first time I heard it, I was kind of insulted. Like, bitch, I'm not about to put my mask on first. Like, <laughs> I have to take care of my babies. But the more I thought about it, it made more sense. And it, it turned out to be a perfect analogy of, how can you take care of somebody? I'm over here, like, can't breathe, no oxygen, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to take care of you, and now I'm dead on the floor, and now y'all are mm -hmm. about to be dead on the floor, too, because nobody has oxygen. So we have to put our mask on first and take care of ourselves, and then we can give to others and help other people. If we're walking around and we're messed up and we can't take care of ourselves, it's really hard to give what other people might need. So we have to be able to identify when we're stressed or, you know, when something's going wrong or when we just need a break. When, when you said, you, you know, you have your days, we need to be able to identify that about ourselves and be okay with not being okay. Yes. Yes. I loved it. Um, another point that is made from our kid, which I think this is so great. So the question is posed, how important is it for mental health professionals to be informed of their HIV, of their parents' HIV care, adherence and attending appointments regularly? Is, I, I just want to simply ask, like, would you care? Is that important? Is that a piece of information that you would need to know? First, I'm living with HIV. And then would you be interested to know about like my adherence to medication and doctor's appointments? I think I would want to know if you if you want to tell me, first of all, when I work with people who were newly diagnosed, I would always tell them, you need to weigh the pros and cons of, of you know, telling people your diagnosis. If you feel like you tell this person your diagnosis and that they will be a supportive force for you, by all means, share the diagnosis. If you feel like you're going to share the diagnosis and you're going to get shame or blamed or talked about, you don't have to tell people. It's none of their business. As a therapist, I feel like if it's something that's affecting your day-to-day -day life, and it and it could potentially, right, because it is something that's on your that you're living with every day, it would be important to know. Um, 
because it could affect your other mental health things that you have going on. So if we're talking about adherence to medication, like, are you depressed? Is that why you're not taking your meds? Or do you have anxiety about what the medication might be doing to your body over, you know, long periods of time? You know, now we're at a point where we can do studies about that. But before, like, who knew what, what the stuff was doing, right? So yes, it's important to talk about but it also depends on what you're coming to therapy for. So if you're coming to therapy, HIV status is not an issue for you. Adherence is not an issue for you. That department is under control, but you're having issues in your relationship. Then we can focus on that. But I don't think it's something where you have to come in and just disclose every little thing about you. Sometimes I meet with people for months before I find out you know, that they were molested as a child, because maybe that's not something that they want to talk about at the moment. So it depends on for me it's about what the what the client wants to talk about not what I think they should be telling me sometimes I know certain things like I've had several people come in I'm like look I know she like girls right <laughs> like I know it I know it she didn't tell me not just yet but eventually we get to that point and then it's like oh, okay well let's talk about this right like I had somebody come in for a grief issue her mom had recently passed but then she started talking about this friend that she had and I was like okay well come to find out a lot of her issues stems to the fact that her mom was very homophobic her mom died she had this friend who was there for her and she had a hard time coming to terms with the fact that she identified as lesbian but she didn't want to face that reality so that's not what we talked about until we finally talked about it when she was a when she was ready this sound like a whole nother a girl like me live on a whole nother episode because sexuality and gender in black communities like I, I'm not sure if that person was black but just to think she was <laughs> I didn't want to assume but yeah wow okay okay there was um a comment that came up that said, my emotions show when I don't want them to. Not sure how to avoid triggers for this. Not sure out of a therapist, like advice, if you're able to respond to that. I think the key word in that sentence was triggers and, and knowing what your triggers are for everything. Sometimes you don't know what they are until you actually start to look for certain patterns. So like example for me, one of my triggers with my kids is when they start whining. <laughs> I know that, okay, this is a moment when I'm going to have to go take 10 steps the other direction so that I, my head doesn't explode because I'm screaming at them. So let me just, mm -hmm. it, it, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it's knowing yourself and knowing those things that are triggering for you. When you know what the triggers are and triggers is one of those buzzwords too, right? Like trauma, like everybody, people just throw it around for everything, but realistically, when you know what those triggers are, when you know those things that, that give you like a invoke an emotion or a feeling, a physical sensation of whatever that is, whether that's like anger or like your heart starts beating fast, like what are those things for you that do that for you? And when you know what those things are, then you can plan accordingly so that you can keep your emotions in check when that happens, right? Because you could say to yourself like, okay, my trigger is, my, my kid's whining. Think ahead of time. What am I going to do when my kids start whining? Usually it happens when we're getting in the car and we're trying to put on seatbelts. Okay, they start whining. I know when I start hearing it, I just walk away from the car. I walk away from the car about 10 feet and then I walk back to the car. And by the time I walk back, I've had enough time to not make a snap judgment and, and yell or fly off the cuff, but I have enough time to walk away, come back and just Usa, start over. Okay, let's start. So we need to know what what are what things kind of upset us. What are those things that make us feel a certain way? And then you can address those things because now you're prepared ahead of time. You know what the what are what are like your what's in your toolbox of things to use to help you address those triggers. Yes, that toolbox. We talk about like a HIV toolbox, having those things in there just in case you need them. And now I'm here in mental health toolbox. So I think 
through life, if I look at it out of that type of like analogy, I've been building different skills and therapy has definitely helped me with that. What else has helped me is having like other systems of support. So I have some familial support. I have like my group of girlfriends that I can go to. I have other supports, but it's nothing like the therapy, but I pull it out when I need to. Dancing is one of my big things. I love to dance. So I'm going to turn on some music. When that son of mine comes with his stuff, all I do is throw my head back and I don't know if I'm praying, meditating or what, but I have to like remove myself from it so that I don't respond to it. With the baby, I've realized it's the ABCs. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm singing the ABCs so that we can make it through that moment and on to the next thing. So I think that these are definitely skills that I've learned in therapy because before I have an experience, um, a history of like suicidal ideations, I've been hospitalized before and all of that, but not jumping to the deep end has definitely taken some work and some guidance and just a lot of care and attention. I'm grateful that I've gotten there, but it definitely has not been by myself. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's important for all of us to remember that just because you have done things a certain way doesn't mean that you have to keep doing things that same way, right? Like you can go from that extreme way of thinking to we're trying to get to the middle, right? It doesn't have to be black or white, but we want it to be more gray. So when something bad happens to us, we don't want to go to the extreme of the suicidal ideation. It happens. I'm sure we would all prefer that it didn't, right? Like people who have suicidal ideation don't think, oh, I, I hope I have some suicidal thoughts today. That's not what crosses their mind, but that's the coping skill. But that's the importance of knowing like what, what are those triggers? Is it, are you feeling more stressed? Are you feeling more overwhelmed? And how do we take some of that stuff away so that we don't get to that extreme end of having these thoughts? And then when we do have these thoughts, what are some of the things that we can do to kind of curb those thoughts, right? Because sometimes the thoughts are, I wonder what it would be like if I wasn't here. That doesn't mean you're gonna go jump off a bridge, but it means that I wonder what it would be like if I wasn't here. Well, then start to think about that. Well, you know, my kids might miss me or, you know, my clients might miss me. Um, I wouldn't be able to finish the things that I feel like I've been sent here on this earth to do, whatever that is. I think it, a lot of mental health comes down to knowing yourself and being open to knowing yourself even better. Yes, yes, yes. Um, okay, we're making it one down the list. While we're in this moment here, guys, please don't forget to complete our survey. The link is in the comment section. You can come back and fill it out. I would, we would so greatly appreciate it. Um, and Rainisha, you have alluded to this a couple of times, but I want to kind of sit here for a moment. The question is, uh, what kinds of effects does your mental or emotional have? health have on your physical health? Like, is there a correlation between the two? I think there is. Um, I think that if you are anxious and depressed or you're experiencing trauma or you're overwhelmed and stressed, most people don't want to do things, right? Like when you're depressed, like nobody, sometimes you don't want to eat or cook or sleep or take a shower. So it's really hard to do those things that are good for your body, like physical um, physical things, exercising, things that are overall good for you when you feel so bad. But plot twist, you feel better when you do those things. So it's kind of like, you know, you're doing this dance of where do I start? How do I start? Well, you might start, you know, my same client that I spoke about earlier um, also was having some issues with her weight. And we talked about just move for 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes a day. You could be cleaning your house for 10 minutes. You can march in place for 10 minutes. You don't have to even go outside, but just getting up and doing some type of movement for 10 minutes, start small. And that's, I think is, is a good way to kind of start to implement that physical movement when you are feeling bad because depressed people usually don't want to get up and do stuff. 
Like you just want to lay in your little corner and be depressed. <laughs> like, um, it, you don't want to go out and run a marathon. You just want to be there. But I think part of the depression and anxiety, part of that relief is getting your body moving and, you know, getting the, the juices flowing and endorphins going and all that stuff. Even if it is a, a spin around a block or just a 10 or 15 minute walk. It's crazy that you say that, like, depressed people don't want, yes, like, depression, and it's hard to explain even what depression feels like, like, it's like this sadness for me, but it's like an extreme sadness, and I realized last summer I was pregnant, so I have a nine-month-old now, um, I was so depressed during that pregnancy, and I don't even think that things like postpartum get talked about as nearly as much as it should. But I can remember moments sitting in the bed with like a box of cereal, no lie, no exaggeration, just the sound of chewing the cereal drowned out any thoughts I was having in my head. So I just kept going back for more handfuls of cereal, trying to drown out those things that I didn't want to hear. Doesn't. That didn't work. You know, it makes one issue a little worse now and then before. But in the moment, that's all that I could. That that was what was working for me. Oh, my gosh. It's such a dance, a tango, like an up and down type thing. And I don't think that what if I had to leave with anything, mental health is not particular to just one person or one group of people. We all have mental health. It's whether or not we want to acknowledge, address it, um, talk about things that have happened, things that we've tried to push to the back of our heads. Like, I feel like it's still there. It has still happened. And just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not impacting you. So I don't know. My, my little piece of advice was if you have access to it, Please seek it if if that's something that you want to do. You don't have to, <laughs> and that it it may take some time for you to find that right fit. It may take some time, and don't give up on yourself. Um, do you have any words that you would like to leave the people with? Uh, just to piggyback on that, also, you know. There are some therapists, if you're looking for a therapist of color, there are websites that are specific to finding a therapist for color. I know Therapy for Black Girls is one of the more popular ones. Um, and there's one for the Latinx community. I need to find it um, and I can send it to you to pass out. But And there are therapists who do offer either sliding scale or pro bono therapy services if you're looking for that. So um you can try to get services that way if you don't have insurance, which, you know, that's a whole other conversation, the lack of healthcare in this country. But I, I like you, feel like mental health is just as important as physical health, if not more important. And I'm really hoping that we continue to push that and get to a point where we can give mental health the attention that it needs so that people are able to take care of themselves and that it doesn't, you know, come to people not being able, you know, having to choose between what's important because your mental health is extremely important. And I'm hoping that we get rid of some of the stigma around it. You know, it's like you said, we, we all deal with something. No person in this world, even people who have money are, you know, nobody is not, stressed or overwhelmed at times about certain things even people who have money i think that is like should be starred highlighted and bolded because so many times we think money would like solve all of our issues even people kanye come on (laughs) even people who have money Oh, well, this was such a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Please join us again next month for our 21st episode of A Girl Like Me Live. Keep an eye and ear open for our topic and guest. And please don't forget to take that survey. Once again, thank y'all so much for being here and have a good one.